Well, good morning, church. I hope that you are ready for a word from the Lord. I hope your hearts, your minds, your souls are filled with expectation for what God is going to say to you today. And if you are in agreement with me and you are expectant and ready and, and open for what God is going to do, why don't you type in the comments, it's time. Two words, it's time. Prepare your hearts in expectation. I know that we are excited to come back in person very soon. I know that we are tired of being online, tired of watching this on our devices or our television sets or our iPads or our laptops. I totally understand that, but church, let me just tell you that God wants to do something in you today. God wants to do something in your heart right now. I've been praying for you this week, and I've been praying that this word will challenge and change and transform you. It's been transforming me, and I believe it is going to transform you. So let's begin to anticipate in our hearts what God is going to do. Open our arms wide, that our hearts would be soft, that the soil of our souls would be ready for the seeds of the gospel to be planted deep in our souls so that we can bear much fruit. I also want us, before we pray, to keep in mind those in our congregation who are hurting. Some of you already know and, and have, have been helping out in this regard. The Thames family, Elder Richard, his daughter Rakita, his son Zach, as they lost their mother and wife, Santoria Thames, who was a beloved member of our congregation. They just had the funeral a couple of weeks ago. Please keep the Thames family in your prayers. Continue to do good works to them and reach out to them and encourage them because this is an important time as they navigate grief and loss. I want them to know that we are with them. Also lift up Elder Willie Mae Jackson as her mother went home to be with the Lord. Please pray for the Jackson family as they navigate both life and death, that babies are being born and they're also having to put family members to rest. Would you lift your hands right now as we pray for ourselves and for these beloved members of our congregation. God in heaven, we acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge that you're real. We acknowledge that there's no distance between this space and wherever someone may be watching. And we believe what you say when you tell us that the words of the Lord do not return void, but they accomplish every single thing that they are sent to do. We cannot bank on many things in life, but we can bank on your word accomplishing every single thing that it was sent to do. So now, God in heaven, we ask that you would open up our hearts, that you would give us compassion, that you would give us Christ-ordained love. God, we think of the Thames family and the Jackson family, people who we love, people who are close to us, people who we consider to be friends, brothers and sisters. And God, we ask that your Holy Spirit's arms would wrap around them, bring them close, help them to navigate the difficult days ahead of grief and lament and loss. Give them joy, God, give them hope, give them love. And may we be your hands and feet, your messengers of love. And God, there can't be a fire in anyone's place as we enter into this word if there's an iceberg behind the pulpit. So God, would you light me on fire that I may burn for your truth, your justice, your love, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. It's in that name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, our text today is found in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is our text. And as we think about this, I want to frame it because we are, over the next few weeks, going to be talking about some very difficult and maybe not even difficult, but just important practices that may have been ignored by many people within the church. And the reason is very simple because, church, I hope you hear this, and I hope you already know this and can sense this in the spirit, but church as we know it is no longer. Church as we have previously conceived of it, it is going to be different. As we anticipate coming back together in worship, we must realize and understand that we are going to be entering into a new environment. The things that we expected to be able to do and the presuppositions that we brought into the worship moment as we gather together are no longer. And this is a good thing. This is a healthy thing. If we truly believe in the God of the universe, then we should not be afraid. We should not think that this means the end of the church. No, this means the, the bright beginning of the church, the future of the church. We are stepping into it in real time. We are experiencing a new move of God. And I know that it may be fearful at first, but I want you to trust me when I say God is up to something. God is up to something. But before we can even get into what God is up to, we must posture ourselves to be able to be doing the things that God would have us doing for this moment. And there's some principles that we need to master as a church, as a body, as believers, Jesus followers, that are often forgotten, often ignored, and often something that we do not consider. And I wanna start with one today that is very, very difficult for many of us because we might think that we're already doing it, but I wanna challenge you to open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you because the Holy Spirit has been convicting me. This principle that we're gonna talk about today from Luke chapter seven is the principle of welcome. Type just one word in the comments wherever you're watching, welcome. It is interesting for Christians and believers to struggle with this idea of welcoming because we serve a welcoming savior. If there's anything that we know about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, it's that he left the glories of heaven, wrapped himself up in human flesh, was born to a virgin Mary, was born in a lower class area, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? To a carpenter, to someone who would not be in the royal class, in the rich class, in the privileged class, in the powerful class, according to people's standards. And it's so interesting that this God who comes and walks among us, Emmanuel, the God with us, welcomes people that society says he shouldn't. Isn't it so interesting that the God whom we serve welcomes people whom society looks down upon him for associating with? This is the savior of the world. This is the one who is supposed to bring in the just reign and rule of God. And the savior of the world is welcoming people that according to society, according to the religious leaders, according to the people who are in power, he has no business welcoming. And not only this, but we see this is continuation. It's a continuation of the character of God in the Old Testament. I know we don't often like to talk about this, but God is radically welcoming in the Old Testament. He doesn't always do things that we understand. Doesn't always do things that we can immediately readily process doesn't always do things that make sense to us in this current moment with our modern sensibilities and our understanding of the world. But it is true that the God of the Old Testament, it's a continuation of what he did then. 
That's what Jesus is doing. God is welcoming people. He's welcoming the stranger and the sojourner and the people who are considered to be foreigners and outsiders and the people who are even ostracized and on the lower class of society, the people who are being abused and mistreated. God is a welcoming God. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I serve a welcoming Savior. If that's you, why don't you wave at me in the comments if you're glad that God didn't just welcome others, but God welcomed you. Aren't you glad that God welcomed you, that God opened up his arms to you and said, come in, you are welcome in my family. You're welcome at my table. You are welcome here. And even though I'm glad that God has welcomed me, and I bet that you're glad that God has welcomed you, Christians aren't often known as welcoming people. The followers of Jesus do not have a reputation for being very welcoming, do we? God is a welcomer, but we often receive the welcome of God, catch this, as an invitation to reject others from the same welcome that we have received for ourselves. <laughs> Can I say it again? God is a welcomer, but we often receive the welcome of God as an invitation to reject others from the very same welcome that we have received for ourselves. And doesn't it seem strange that the people whom God could welcome and has welcomed, we reject. Doesn't it seem strange that people can't see welcome in the people who follow the God who is radically welcoming? Doesn't that seem weird? Doesn't that seem strange to you? It doesn't add up to me. One of my friends, he always says, the math ain't mathing. <laughs> it don't make sense to me. It ain't adding up. It's like what Brennan Manning says. He tells this story in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He says that there was a public sinner who was excommunicated and, and forbidden entry to the church. And this sinner takes his woes to God. And he says, they won't let me in, Lord, because I'm a sinner. And God looks at, back at him and says, what are you complaining about? They won't let me in either. Maybe it's not that we're just pushing other people away. Maybe because we are not entering into the welcome that God has offered to us, we're pushing God away too. Maybe we are not experiencing the presence of God because we have pushed away people whom God loves. Perhaps that's what it is. You know, earlier this week, I took a break. And I'm unashamed to say this because I believe pastors need to take a break. You want me being at my best self, not my worst self, not my burnt out self, okay? Not my run down self. You want me to be operating at optimum level, right? So I took a few days away and, and my wife, Mylena, was so kind enough just to say, just go and, and have fun in New York, stay with your friends and reset, recharge as we get ready to ramp up and go back to in-person worship. And I went to my favorite place, one of my favorite places. I can't say it's my favorite place, but it is one of my favorite places in the entire world, Central Park. For those of you who haven't been, I hope you get to go one day. It's over 840 acres of beautiful scenery and lush gardens and trees and water and streams and all kinds of things. And I was sitting there and I was praying. I was asking God to make me better. I was asking God to search my heart. I was praying my typical prayers. I was praying God make me an instrument of peace from St. Francis, Francis of Assisi. I was saying, God, please transform me, change me. 
And God said some things back to me that I wrote down. And one of them shocked me. One of them surprised me. God asked me this question. God said, how many people have you welcomed? Who have you welcomed? And I remember sitting with that question for a while, for a long time, and wrestling back and forth at what God meant. And I wrote that question down. And I said, God, I feel like I've done a good job in this area. I feel like I've done a good job welcoming people. And I started to list off some of the people who in my mind I thought I had welcomed. And God asked the question again, who have you welcomed? It's interesting when the Bible talks about welcome, the literal meaning of the word. In the scriptures, it means to receive with gladness. To receive with gladness. Who have you received with gladness? And I sat back on the bench and I sat in silence. And I had this encounter with God where I asked God to open up and expand my heart, to, to stretch my arms wider, to help me to see broader, and to help me to see people who I have looked down upon, to help me to see people who I have ignored and receive them with gladness. One theologian puts it like this, a Christian is a keyhole through which other folk see God. And maybe the reason why people don't like the God we serve is because they don't see the God we serve in us. A Christian is supposed to be a glimpse, a picture, a foreshadowing of the God in which people will meet. And maybe people would be more interested in that God if we reflected his welcome better. I know this is challenging. I know you might be thinking in your heart, of course I'm a welcoming person. Would you check that impulse at the door? Would you allow your, your welcoming sensibilities to be expanded a little bit more? Would you allow your heart to be pricked and challenged and changed? Because I believe that God wants us to welcome even more than what we have been. In our text, we see that the welcome, the topic of welcome, is the issue at hand. Jesus is invited over to a feast, a dinner by someone named Simon. And Jesus is at this meal, and it's no shock, Tim Chester talks about this. He says that in the book of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus could eat, y'all, okay? Jesus was eating good in the neighborhood, okay? And Jesus, <laughs> was known as someone who was eating meals so much so that the religious leaders and the Pharisees and those who hated him considered him to be a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus was so central. Jesus was so emphasizing of fellowship at the table, of sharing a meal together. Let's look at what Luke chapter 6 verse 36 says about this story. The text says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
Here what we see is that Jesus is reclining at the table, reclining at the table of someone who is considered to be important. If he weren't important, Jesus would not have had a crowd of people around him, with him. And this man, Simon, invites Jesus over, but Simon and Jesus have a different view of the events around them. Simon and Jesus have a different view of the woman who is at the feet of Jesus. What you'll see here is that Jesus is reclining in the table as it is the custom of the time, and that means that his feet were stretched out. His feet were accessible to the people who are around him. And somehow, some way, this woman gets into this particular environment, and some of the translations of this particular passage say that this woman was a sex worker. Some of the translations talk about her just living a sinful life. Some of them talk about her being shamed by the people around her. But whatever it is, this woman is looked down upon by Simon, and she starts to do this ritual of wetting Jesus' feet, his dirty, nasty feet, his feet that were unclean with her tears and, and wiping them with her hair and pouring perfume upon them, giving them fragrance and aeration. And what we see here is that Simon looks down upon the woman, but Jesus does not do that. Jesus does not look down upon the woman as though she has no value. Rather, Jesus looks at the woman and sees something in her. Jesus welcomes her into this moment, even though she would not have been welcome at the same table that he was reclining at. And here's the interesting thing, because in that context, there was this idea that if certain people touch you, that you could be made unclean. And yes, I know it is popular for us because Cece won and sang the song to talk about the alabaster box and how she poured perfume upon him and, and wiped his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. I, I know that's popular, but here's the truth I want you to get, I want you to grasp, that they didn't care about what was being poured as much as they cared about who was pouring it. Jesus looks at the woman and identifies her. Simon looks at the woman and identifies her for a different reason. It matters how you identify the people who God desires to welcome. It matters how you characterize them. It matters what you think about them. It matters what you say to them. It matters how you refer to them. And Jesus doesn't look down upon the woman. Jesus sees what the woman is attempting to do. But Simon looks at the woman, and if you catch this in verse 39, here's what Simon says. It says here, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What a sinner she is. Don't you know her reputation? Don't you know what people say about her? Don't you know what she's done in her past? The question that probably some people should have asked Simon is, how do you know what she's done? How do you know about her reputation? How do you know that she's looked at? How do you know she lived a sinful life? And Simon is trying to protect Jesus. Simon is trying to keep Jesus away from this woman. 
Because in their day, Tim Chester puts it like this, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, if you gave a dish to the poor, it became unclean because the poor were the great unwashed who didn't fulfill ceremonial washing. But Jesus says the dish becomes clean because it expresses love. Catch this church. Jesus can be touched, but he can't be changed. Just because you touch Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus is changed because you touched him. It means you're changed. You don't make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes you clean. You don't make Jesus unholy. Jesus makes you holy. You don't make Jesus someone who is pushed out. Jesus makes you someone who gets brought in. You touching Jesus doesn't change Jesus. So here's the thing I need to tell you. You don't need to protect Jesus. Jesus welcomes all people because all people can't change who Jesus is. Jesus welcomes the people whom society says should not be seen, should not be loved, should not be cared for. Why? Because Jesus can't be changed. No matter who touches him, from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, from the center of society to the margins that no one knows about. Whoever reaches out and touches Jesus, Jesus changes them instantly. Aren't you glad that when you reached out to touch Jesus, when you reached out with your unclean hands to lay your hands upon the master, that the master didn't recoil, but the master entered in, wrapped you up and said, come into my rest. Come into the kingdom of God. Come into the family of God. And this won't mean anything to you if you ain't really been saved, if you ain't really been redeemed, if you ain't really been delivered, if you haven't really been liberated. Because those of us who have know the depths of what people could have said about us. And for some of us, they already have. Look, don't you know that person? Don't you know them? Don't you know what they've done before? Be honest. You talk about people like this, right? Is it just me? <laughs> Are we being honest here today, church? That we characterize people by their past, not by what God has given them as a purpose. That we characterize people by their failures, not their future. That we characterize people by what society says, not by what our Savior says. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. She can touch me because it doesn't make me unclean, but it does make her clean. It does change her. I can be touched and not change, but she can't touch me without changing. And I am glad I serve a God who isn't afraid to be touched, who isn't afraid to be reached out to, who isn't afraid to welcome in the people who we don't want to be associated with. That's a good God. <laughs> That's a God worthy of praise. That's a God who is just. That's a God who is loving. That's a God who welcomes. And here, this is what Simon says. He says, why is it that he's allowing her to touch him? There's something else that we can see here. And what we can see here is that the Pharisees are more concerned with rituals, but Jesus is more concerned with righteousness. The Pharisees thought that those who kept the law were clean. Jesus knew that those who kept the law can be as unrighteous as those who don't even know what the law is. I'm about to stand up and, and walk around the camera. Those who keep the law, those who have perfect church attendance, those who tithe on time every month, those who speak in unknown tongues, 
those who read their Bibles from front to back, those with titles in front of their names, those with anointing and gift, those with power in the pulpit, those with might on the mic, those who are seen as the people who know Jesus can be just as unrighteous as those who don't even know who Jesus is. Be careful about thinking the rituals makes you righteous. Paul says this in Philippians 3. He says, I kept the law better than all of y'all. I did it better than everybody. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was blameless according to the law. But whatever I had, I had to give up. I had to count it as nothing. Why? So that I could gain Christ, who's greater than the law, who's completed the law, who's the person who instituted the law. Don't think that just because you keep the rules that you're righteous, church. And this is where welcome is important. Because sometimes we don't welcome people because they don't keep the same rules we keep. They don't have the same rituals we have. And we say, well, I would welcome them if they just cleaned themselves up a little bit. Who is the determiner of who is clean and unclean? Is it us or is it Jesus? Is it us or is it the one who has called us clean even though we came to him unclean? Don't be so concerned with rituals that you miss who's really righteous. And church, we need to say this because we always need to be reminded that no matter how long we have been saved, no matter how long we have loved Jesus, no matter how long we have told people that we go to church, that we are elders, that we are pastors, that we are bishops, that we are prophets, that we serve, it doesn't mean automatically that we are righteous and someone is unrighteous. Be careful, church. Be careful. And the plot thickens because other accounts of this passage, they talk about this man named Simon. This man who this particular passage in Luke chapter 7 is characterized as a Pharisee. Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, they characterize Simon a little bit differently. In Luke's passage, Simon is a Pharisee. In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Simon is a leper. Simon the Pharisee in Luke Matthew and Mark, Simon the leper. Now, from all that I can gather, cross-referencing the text, looking at the translation and the transliterations, looking at all of the ways and the timelines and the chronology of where Jesus was at this particular moment, I can't say for certain that this is the same exact person, Simon the Pharisee and Simon the leper, in the Luke account and the Matthew and the Mark account. I can't say for certain. I can't say with definitive confidence that this is the same person. But the possibility is poignant, is it not? The possibility is interesting. Because Simon, the man who had been healed, there's even a commentator, he puts it like this. It wasn't that Simon was a Pharisee, it's that he had a Pharisee mentality. <laughs> it wasn't that Simon was actually a part of the Pharisaical order. It was that Simon had the same mindset and the mentality of the Pharisees themselves. <laughs> because see, here's the, here's the warning. No matter if it's the same person, if it's Simon the leper, Simon the Pharisee, they're, they're one and the same and they're two different people. There's a warning that we need to heed. Be careful about a Jesus that's just for you and no one else. 
be careful about a Jesus that's only for your issue, not others. Be careful about a Jesus, church, that can only save you and not your enemies. Be careful about a Jesus that can only heal your, heal your ailment, not your neighbors. Be careful about a Jesus that's only a deliverer for your bondage, not the rest of the world that you consider to be unclean. Be careful, church. And it is interesting because it would be a lot like us. It would be a lot like us for Simon to have been healed from his impurities and imperfections, ceremonially unclean, and then turn around and look down upon the people who could get the same healing. How would our churches look differently? How would our representation, our expression of faith look different? If we remembered what God did for us. If we remembered our testimony. Not for shame, but for celebration. Not so that we can look down upon ourselves, but so that we can welcome others. How much different would it look, church, if we remembered that we've been healed? So why are we looking down on people who are sick? Why are we looking down on people who are still bound just because we're delivered and liberated and walking in all that God wants us to walk in? How would it be different? Jesus goes on to answer Simon and he says, Simon, I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says, verse 41, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Church, we're out of time, but I just want to throw this out there to you. Do you love to the level of your forgiveness? Does it look like you're forgiven by how you love? Does it look like You've been forgiven by who you love? Does it look like you've been forgiven by what you do with your love? The, the NEB translation, it translates it like this, verse 47, it says, And so I tell you, her great love proves that her many sins have been forgiven. It proves it. Because our forgiveness and the way that we care for others and the way that we welcome is the greatest indication that change has happened on the inside of us. And I don't know about you, but I want my love to match the forgiveness that God gave me. I want my welcome to be as wide as the arms of the Savior when I ran to him. I want my heart to be as soft as the heart of Jesus was when he looked down on me with compassion. Didn't matter what family I was born into, how many years my parents had gone to church, didn't matter any of that. Didn't matter what I brought to the table. All I needed was a savior who loved me and welcomed me. And that should be our heart too, church. 
I want to deal with something practical here. Because some of you may be asking, how do I know that I'm welcoming? How do I know I'm being welcoming? How do I know? What are the markers of what true welcome looks like? There are three things. I want you to hear this. You know you're welcoming when the people you're welcoming make you feel uncomfortable. Hear me, church. Welcome should not just be seen as something that relates to a physical church service or an online church service or a church gathering or a gathering of believers and Christians and saved, sanctified saints. That, that's not what we should think of. Welcome is an invitation into a reality. It is hospitality. It is celebration. It is mutuality. It is justice. It is equity. It is love. It is consideration. It is generosity. It is charity. That is the holistic welcome of what God is trying to commune to us. And you know that you're really welcoming when the people that you welcome make you feel uncomfortable. You say, I don't know if I should welcome this person. I don't know if this person is going to get along with my friends. I don't know if this person is going to get along in the church. Welcome those people. Because that's the heart of Jesus. And if our services and if our gatherings are so polished and so prepped and so privileged that we can't welcome people who disrupt what we had planned, it ain't Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's not the gospel. Number two, you know you're welcoming when the people you're welcoming can't make you look good. You know what it's like. We do the tactical welcoming. We welcome people that we want to be friends with in the first place. We welcome people because they make us look good. If our kids play with their kids, that's going to get us something. If our family seen with their family, that makes us look like we're doing the thing. Or we welcome performatively. We got, we got our phone out as we're welcoming people. Feel me doing this. Feel me serving this person. Feel me giving out this money. If they make you look good, then that's your reward. That's all you get. I don't want to just welcome people for myself. I want to welcome people because the God that I love and serve desires for more people to come into his kingdom. And number three, you know you're really welcoming when the people you welcome can't do anything for you. Do you welcome the people that can owe you one? Do you welcome the people that you look at and say, oh yeah, they can do something good for me. They can advance me. They can put me on top. They can put my name in other people's ears. They can help me get this. They can help me get that. It becomes transactional. We got tactical welcome and we got transactional welcome. Where we welcome people in exchange for. Do you realize you can do anything for God, church? Do you realize that there is nothing that you can bring to the table in and of yourself without the grace and the mercy and the unmerited favor of God? That if the, if the spirit of God did not get on you, that there is nothing that you could bring to the table in the kingdom of God? Think about that the next time that we in and of ourselves try to stack the deck and get somebody who makes us look good to owe us one. That's not why we do this.
Can I say something? You hear me? You hear my heart? We don't invite people to the church just because they are elite. We don't invite people to the church because they have money. I don't care about any of that. We don't invite people to the church because they have access, because they have power. If they come, great. Praise God. We welcome you. But if those are the only people that are in our church, something is wrong. That's anti-gospel. That's anti-Jesus. Where are the people who can do nothing for us? Who don't change the budget or the bottom line? Who don't have an overt gift or skill that makes the church look good? We don't just welcome those who make us look good and can do something for us. If we do, we are not following the example of Jesus. And that's not what I want. We want to welcome the people that make us uncomfortable, that can't make us look good, can't do anything for us. That's the gospel. So I have a charge for you. Two charges. Very simple. If you feel as though you have never been welcomed to enter into the kingdom of hospitality, celebration, generosity, justice, equity, come to the table. There is a banquet prepared for you. You don't need a reservation. You don't need to prove anything to anyone else. You don't need a special access code or a handshake. It's an invitation. Come. And secondly, for those of us who have tables, welcome others to your table. Do something this week that welcomes someone. It can be a message. It can be a text. It can be a conversation. It can be coffee. It can be a meal. Welcome someone for real, the way Jesus did. Who have you welcomed, church? That's the question God asked me. That's the question I'll ask you. May we all be challenged by the fact that our arms can always spread wider. And just like God welcomed us, we can welcome others. God in heaven, we ask that you would soften our hearts. We ask that you would challenge us. This isn't a shouting message, but it is a message that can transform and change the way we live. So I pray that it would be planted deep in the soil of our soul, that we may bear the fruit of welcome as your people, the redeemed, the ones who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of God. And may we be challenged, God. May it start with me. May my heart welcome more people love more people, care for more of your children. And may I not be caught up in the work of ministry that I forget the people you've called me to minister to. God, wherever I have failed, God, I as a pastor, as a leader of this church, I repent. And ask that you would give me the forgiveness that you gave to this woman as I step into your presence. And I say, God, make me more welcoming not just on a Sunday morning or to an online service, make me more welcoming in real life. I ask for your forgiveness, God. I ask that I would be an example in this. And God, I pray for our church that we would come together and that they may not be able to say that we have the fanciest service or the biggest building or the largest congregation or the people who everybody wants to be around or the elite in vogue church experience. I don't care about any of that, God. Make us radically welcoming. Make us radically welcoming. That's how we know 
we look like you. In Jesus' name, may it be so. Amen. Church, we love you. Go and welcome. Well, church, I hope that that word and worship blessed you. I hope it challenged you. I hope the seeds of the gospel were sown deep in the soil of your soul so that you can bear much fruit. We don't just believe in making decisions. We truly believe in making transformation and discipleship. So if you made a decision for Christ today, I hope and desire that you would reach out to us, that you would type home in the comment section of Facebook or YouTube. We genuinely want to reach out and talk to you and encourage you and walk with you on this spiritual journey. And when it comes to salvation, I just want to make this clear that it is just a prayer away. That the Bible says that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. And salvation is the most important decision you can make, the decision to follow after Jesus. It's not just a momentary statement. It is a lifelong commitment. It is a heart transformation. And so if that's you and you desire a heart transformation, it is as simple as lifting up your hands and saying, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've gone against your way. God, I desire to follow after you for all of my days. I desire to lift up Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I know that Jesus will change my life forever. It's as simple as that. You don't have to use my words. There's no power in my words. The power is in the confession and in the belief. And if you prayed that prayer, again, type home in the comments. We would absolutely love to talk with you and walk with you along this next stage of your spiritual journey. Thank you again for tuning in. If you did not have the chance to give, I want you to click the app uh, link or the giving link up in the description or in the pinned comment, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube. That'll take you directly to places where you can set up a one-time or recurring gift if you want to sow into the kingdom. There's no compulsion. We're not trying to scheme to get money out of you. That's not our desire at all, at all. We just believe in giving and in generosity because it reflects the heart of the kingdom of God and also so that ministry can be done, true ministry can be done as well. Well, church, I hope to see you next week here at the NDCC Online Worship Experience. Same time, same place, we are going to be here and I know that God is going to meet you. I pray that God stays with you, that it's not just here on a Sunday morning, but I pray that God stays with you throughout the week. I speak blessings upon you, the power and the peace of God upon you as you go into real life now. Go and apply and do what God has taught you today. Well, this is Pastor Tyler and on behalf of our entire team. Thank you again for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Be blessed.
。